A quick content warning before we start today. This episode of Mosaic contains descriptions of sexual assault and rape. This is Mosaic. Mosaic. This is Mosaic. Mosaic. I'm standing in a large, well-groomed field of grass. Behind me is a temple, the Provo Temple in Provo, Utah. A golden angel Moroni is on top of the temple, blowing a trumpet into Rock Canyon. In front of me, I can see the Provo MTC. There's buildings made of brown-orange brick, trees. I didn't go here as a missionary. I went to the Sao Paulo MTC for my mission training. But I have spent a lot of time at the collection of buildings that I'm looking at. I was a teacher here for four years. I taught missionaries how to prepare for their missions, how to listen to the Holy Ghost, how to be obedient. Every Latter-day Saint who's keeping the commandments or following the leadership of the church. By that same token, if you find those who are not willing to follow the leadership of the church, you may be sure that it's a certainty they're not keeping the commandments of God 100%. Knowledge encourages obedience, and obedience enhances knowledge. Exact obedience. That is not a popular word these days. But obedience is a cherished concept in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you can imagine, we often talk to the missionaries about the feelings of happiness and peace that accompany courageous obedience to true principles. Brothers and sisters, the Savior declared, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. Declared President Joseph F. Smith in October 1873, obedience is the first law of heaven. Obedience is the first law of heaven. And surely obedience is the first law of heaven. Obedience is the first law of heaven. That is why Alma exhorted us to be humble, submissive, and diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times. There's a common saying among Mormon missionaries. Obedience brings blessings. Exact obedience brings miracles. But obedience to leaders assumes that we can trust their leadership. What happens when that trust is violated? I reported what you did to me to Elder AC. Do you remember him? Oh, yeah. Corman 70, did he ever talk to you? No. Did anybody from Salt Lake ever tell you that you were accused of sexual assault? No. You were never disfellowshipped, had a counsel? I, I felt I repented. I did, confessed. Oh, did, was it you confessed about me? I don't know about, I, I, I confess all of my sins. What you did to me destroyed my faith and testimony in priesthood leaders and in the church. Wow. Today on Mosaic, Mormon Me Too, Part 1, The First Law of Heaven. I'm Derek Clements. We encourage the missionaries to make obedience their quest. At times we may rationalize that the Lord will understand our disobedience because our special circumstances make adherence to his laws difficult, embarrassing, or even painful. However, faithful obedience, regardless of the apparent size of the task, 
will bring the Lord's guidance, assistance, and peace. I hate talking about obedience, but you probably, since obedience is the first law of everything, and I remind you of your temple experience, I remind you of your life experience, I remind you of what's, what's certainly going to be your mission experience. Tell me how your obedience is, and I'll tell you right now how your mission's going to be. It's as eternal as anything I can ever say to you. I don't know how many women there are, but if this story went public, you would be the Harvey Weinstein of the Mormon Church. True? I would be. Yes, you would be. On April 5th, 2018, there was a press conference in Salt Lake City where McKenna Denson described what she experienced as a missionary in the Provo MTC in 1984. A word of warning, the next few minutes includes a description of sexual assault. I'm McKenna. I'm the woman who's in the recording interviewing Joseph Bishop about the rape in the MTC. Um, there are a few things I'd like to say first before we get into that. And one of those things is how grateful I am to the media who kept the story on track. Because the story is not about me. The story is not necessarily about Joseph Bishop. The story is about the rape in the MTC by a high-level Mormon official, which was the MTC president. The rape and then the cover-up. The Me Too movement is not the reason that I sought out Joseph Bishop. I've been trying for 30 years, three decades, to get the truth from the church. Even some kind of acknowledgement that Joseph Bishop admitted what he did or an acknowledgement that he denied it. However, the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement is the reason I had courage to get on that plane to fly to Arizona and interview Joseph Bishop. Without that courage, I don't believe I would have ever been believed. It gave me the courage to understand that maybe this time, maybe this time, someone would believe me. And so I went to Arizona and I interviewed President Bishop. So I think it's time to talk a little bit about my history. Um, many of you know that I grew up in a family with um, a violently abusive stepfather. He was a pedophile. Um, then I went to high school and I met some, there were some students there that were so devoted to their beliefs. And those people really inspired me. And I started asking questions. Um, I learned that they were Mormon. I had never even heard of a Mormon before. But it changed my life. I started taking the missionary lessons and I loved the gospel. I felt joy. I felt peace. I felt safe for the first time in my life. And I was 15 years old when I took the um, missionary lessons. So I decided to go on a mission because I wanted to share that joy and that peace and that safety with the world. So I was really excited to go on a mission. And for the first time, I felt like I had a, a divine purpose, which I never felt like I had before. Okay, so the MTC. The first day I got to the MTC, um, I went to the MTC without family, without friends. I went alone, as many others did, some either coming from non-member families or perhaps coming from a different part of the country. Um, so I got there the first day and there were families everywhere. 
And then that evening, the mission president had a welcoming um, in an auditorium, and he called on me specifically to bear my testimony, which I did. The next meeting where the, where the missionaries all met together, he called on me again to give the prayer. Joseph Bishop sought me out individually. He started calling me out of class. My Spanish didn't develop much. Um, he'd call me out of class and have me come to his room. The first time he did that, there were three other sister missionaries in that room. His office? That office, sorry. Yes, forgive me. Uh, it was his MTC office. So there were three other sister missionaries there, and we were asked very explicit questions um, about our sexual trauma as children. It was, it was traumatizing because I had already um, put so much of that behind me. Um, I had to revisit that trauma in an interview with my mission president who I believed was trying to counsel us, was trying to make us feel better about um, going on our missions and that those childhood traumas did not minimize who we were in any way. Then I had two or three other experiences with President Bishop in his main office with another sister missionary talking about the same types of things. And then it became one-on-one. -on -one. So I was called out of class to visit with the MTC president in his office, one-on-one. -on -one. Those conversations were inappropriate and sexual in nature. Then President Bishop asked me if I would be interested in seeing the room where he prepared all of his talks. Um, where he did his spiritual contemplating and praying. And I said, yeah, I'd love that. You have to understand that President Bishop made me feel special. He told me I was special. He told me I was going to be amazing. Um, I had never had anyone in the church that was so high-ranking ever pay any attention to me. I... I loved it. I needed it. I was desperate for it, particularly a man because my stepfather was so abusive. So we, we went down um, the dark tunnel, really. Um, he unlocked the room where he had a bed, a TV, a VCR, and unlabeled VHS tapes. Joseph Bishop tore my blouse open, pulled my garments and pantyhose down. He um, pulled his pants down. He was not fully erect, but when he penetrated me, he pulled away and he was trying to make himself hard so he could complete uh, the rape. And that's when I was able to kick and get away from him. Um, when I was pulling up my pantyhose and trying to button my blouse or put myself together, he said to me, no one will believe you. Look at you. 
Look at me. Look at you. Look at me. So when I left his secret room in the basement, um, I went to my dorm and I laid down and I pretended I was sick. I didn't tell anyone what happened to me um, until I spoke to my, my singles ward bishop, who then arranged an interview with me and Elder Carlos E. A. C. of the 70. I got married, moved to Taiwan, started living my life. A little while later, I, uh, I started asking questions to the church. Could you give me some update? Could you let me know what happened? Um, we're taught in the church that we don't go to the police. We go to the bishop. We go to the stake president. And trusting that and obeying that and believing that, that's the reason why I didn't go to the police all those years ago. It was never suggested to me that that would be appropriate. So I went through the church for three decades. I didn't get answers. And finally, November of 2017, um, I reached out to the BYU Police Department who told me that I'd been raped. I, did, I had never even thought that I'd been raped. It didn't occur to me that that legal definition, what happened to me in the basement of the MTC was rape. I always thought it was sexual assault. But now I know. When McKenna's story first broke, her name and identity were not initially public. A tape recording surfaced online, partially redacted, in which McKenna can be heard posing as a reporter. Oh, nice to meet you. <laughs> and sitting so down with Joseph Bishop for an interview. The meeting occurred in December 2017. Do you know what the point of this is? I'd like to know. Um, there are some amazing um, church leaders who have done tremendous work. Um, and I, it's sort of an unsung hero. For the first 40 minutes or so of the recording, the conversation is all about Bishop's history as a church leader. Can we, can I ask you a couple questions? Oh yeah, absolutely. I've had some amazing experiences, highly spiritual, that I don't talk about all the time. Yes. For obvious reasons. Yes, sir. There is uh, some, some things that I think might help struggling mission presidents. Thank you. I'd be happy to go into all that, but I've had so many of those things. This might be a long interview. But at a certain point, the conversation shifts, and McKenna's true purpose for the visit comes out. Well, there are some things about the MTC that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I was at the MTC in '84, and you were my mission president. No wonder you're so talented. Is that why? <laughs> Is that right? After 40 minutes of talking about the books Bishop has written and the positive experience he's had as a leader of the church, McKenna confronts him. One thing I learned is that um, people, when they have some kind of an addiction, um, like my stepfather was violently sexually abusive. And you and I talked about that MTC. And we did? Yes, we did. Yeah. There's my bad memory again. Here's your bad memory. Anyway. 
Um, yeah, you helped me understand that it wasn't my fault, which was really amazing. Um, but you also kind of groomed me a little bit. And you took me down into the basement. It wasn't really a basement, but it was downstairs, a little storage room. Um, I'm not angry with you because I think you are. Well, maybe, but I'm not. I'm I'm over a lot of things that have happened to me, but you hurt me, and I need an apology. Well, I apologize from the depth of my heart. I can't remember what it was, but I'm. Okay, let's let's go back a little bit. The conversation doesn't abruptly end when the topic of conversation abruptly changes. Before McKenna even finishes her initial accusation, she prefaces that she's not angry, and he immediately interrupts her to say, You ought to be. You ought to be. And then they go on talking for two more hours. Um, Do you know who I am? No, I don't. Are you... Yeah, I do. I threatened to kill you in 2010. You had some biker friends? No, biker friends, God no. You came in to the mission and you had had a tough life. And you know that because like we had conversations, yeah. correct. Yes, that's correct. You went over, you uh, went over to the temple had your picture taken? Was, was that? No. Okay. You gave me permission to go to the temple because I had been raped and had a baby out of wedlock. Okay, I remember that. Gave the baby up for adoption throughout the October. I remember that. Okay. The recording was first published in March 2018 on the website Mormon Leaks, which is set up as a platform for what it describes as whistleblowers within the Mormon church. The site has published leaked internal church documents and media files, like videos of private church administration meetings, financial documents, that kind of thing. When the site published McKenna's recording, she says she was in settlement negotiations with the church, And she did not give her consent for the recording to go public. But she has since said that she's glad Mormon Leaks published the tape. Doing so likely eliminated the possibility of a non-disclosure agreement to be made between McKenna and the church. And shortly after the recording was released, McKenna held that press conference and publicly identified herself, announcing that she was suing the corporation of the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Joseph Bishop. I have carried this, and it has destroyed my life. So, do you remember the room in the basement? I do. For his part, Bishop has denied the accusation of rape, as well as some of the details of the room in the MTC. Denials both in response to the lawsuit and on the recording itself. But on the recording, he does admit to several other instances of sexual misconduct throughout his career as a church leader. Do you remember the other girl with me? Pardon? Do you remember the other girl with me? The other one you you were grooming? Her name was... Yes, that's her last name. I remember... Did you molest her? Yes. She ended up living with us. When did you molest her? 
when she was living with us. Oh, God. I want to tell you about this. Please do. We left that, yeah. I came in and she wanted her back rub. And I rubbed her back. And that got too much. Yeah. So, did your wife know? No. Anyway, I was thrust unwittingly and unwantingly into a work with... Women like me. Women who had been harmed. Traumatized. Traumatized. And, and I was not strong. The last person that should have been in that situation was me. I shouldn't have been in that position. But anyway, there I was. So did you, when you talked to Brother Wells and you repented, did you talk about this? Yes. You talked about what you did with me and other women? Yes. How many other women are there? It's not that there's so many other women. It's just the few that were there. Few. I remember one when I was in the bishopric. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was so long before you were a missionary, a mission president. That was. You were a prisoner. You preyed on women, vulnerable women, broken women, women who you thought were not strong and could not, or would not. You told me that nobody would believe me. I did? Yes, you did. I apologize for that. A couple different times, he recalls details that might be related to McKenna. And she's heard on the tape saying, no, that wasn't her. You had had uh, an operation, a breast enhancement? No. <laughs> no. I had no boobs at 21 years old. Well, you talked about it because you had no boobs at 21. I thought you had any... Why would I have, why would we talk about having a boob job at 21 and you thinking I have a boob job when I have no breasts whatsoever? Yeah. Okay. I wore padded bras, so I think your, I think your understanding was Anyway, that, that's what I remember about, about that, honestly. Okay. That recollection is relevant to what Bishop later told police about what happened with McKenna in 1984. And while he says on the recording that he doesn't remember the rape occurring, he also doesn't completely rule it out. I do not remember that. And maybe it's just because my mind doesn't want me to remember that. But I don't remember that. That's not an excuse. That's just a... So then that, because you don't remember that... I can't say to anybody I did this. So you wouldn't have said it. So... I guess it's tucked away. Maybe it'll come out like it did with the sister missionaries when they get in the right environment. Maybe. I don't remember that, and now I'm worrying about what else don't I remember. Well, I think that's a pretty good thing to worry about. But you have that storage room. Why did you take me down there? And why did you do what you tried to do? I think at that time, I was still very much addicted. You, you were really struggling? Oh my. I have struggled. I have struggled my whole life on this very issue. With no 
counseling, no way of making a change of behavior. See, I'm, I, I used to say to myself all the time, I'm a hypocrite. You were. Yeah, of course. Yeah, damn right you were. And if you have forgotten at least that small part. I did, which makes me wonder what else I might have forgotten. So it doesn't surprise you that you may have done that. Hold on. McKenna made contact with BYU police at the end of November 2017, before she met with Bishop, to report what happened at the MTC. A partially redacted copy of the police report is online. On that report, Sergeant Robert Nelson wrote the following. After interviewing Blank, Detective Long and I met with Joseph at his Blank residence on December 5th, 2017. Joseph's account was fairly similar except for the rape. Joseph told us that he did go to his small MTC preparation room in the cafeteria area with Blank. Then while talking to her, he asked her to show him her breasts, which she did. When asked to explain why his account of the rape was different than hers, he said he either can't remember it or that Blank was exaggerating her account. Joseph said the room did not have a bed, TV, or VHS tapes. Between the time Blank reported the rape and her interview with us, Blank had traveled to Blank and met with Joseph. She spoke with him about this incident that took place at the MTC. Blank said he admitted to everything except the rape. Blank recorded the conversation and provided us a copy of it. I listened to it, and it was consistent to their interviews, except the facts of the rape and the room layout. Later in the police report, Deputy Utah County Attorney David Sturgill is quoted, saying, I have no reason to doubt the victim's disclosure and would have likely prosecuted Mr. Bishop, but for the expiration of the statute of limitations. In Joseph Bishop's account to the police, he did not apparently admit to rape, but what he did admit to is still the behavior of a sexual predator. You might call it non-consensual immorality because there's no way any sexual exchange between a mission president and a young missionary could be consensual, especially not in an environment where missionaries are always being reminded to be obedient to their mission leaders. A mission president taking a sister missionary to a private room in the basement of the MTC and asking her to expose her body for his gratification is predation. It's not possible for consent to be present in that scenario. After the story broke, a former MTC employee confirmed to KUTV the existence of the room, as McKenna had described it. This is what the report from March 22nd says. The former employee doesn't know the alleged victim, but recognized her description of the unusual room in the basement of the MTC. The employee said the room was in an otherwise unfinished area in a lower junction part of the building. The area provided access to the building's water pipes, electrical lines, and tunnels connected to other campus structures. It was only accessible after passing through more than one locked door. The employee said the room itself had no windows, but was fully furnished inside. The furnishings included a single bed, similar to those used in the MTC dorms, and a TV and VHS player on a mobile cart. Continuing from the report, Two News was provided with an employment document which shows the employee worked for BYU shortly after the time Bishop served in the MTC. BYU students commonly work on the site at the MTC. 
The former employee said they were told the room was, quote, used by a previous MTC president as a place he would take naps and sometimes pray and also watch Mormon Tabernacle Choir videos to help him relax. Based on the nature of the basement alone, it would be shocking for anyone to take a sister missionary down in that basement for any reason. It was very dirty, dusty, with water dripping, running down the walls. It was a dark, dank, smelly place, the person told Two News. That's why the fully built-out little room down there was so odd. It had nice floors, walls, ceilings, but no windows. It looked like almost any other training room in the MTC, with the exception of the bed, of course. It was just really odd and totally out of place. And later in the KUTV report, another quote from the employee, saying, There is no earthly reason she should have known that room existed, and no reason anyone should have been in that room alone with her. Here's my bad memory. Here's your bad memory. Anyway. Reading the 76-page transcript of the recording between McKenna and Bishop gives one level of understanding of what happened. But actually listening to the tape opens up nuances of the conversation that you don't get just by reading it. And then there's another level of understanding that can come by sitting down and having a face-to-face conversation. So that's what I did next. Two weeks ago, I got on a plane and flew to Salt Lake City, and I met with McKenna at the City Library. Thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you, Derek. In this next segment of today's episode, how McKenna decided to confront her former mission president, in her own words. And coming up, as we conclude part one of this series, we'll meet someone new who entered this story late in a surprising and unfortunate way and whose own story further deepens and complicates this one. The topics that we're talking about today are very sensitive. Yes. And so um, if there's something you don't want to talk about or, or if there's a question you don't want to answer, that's perfectly fine. Just wanted to let you know right from the start. Thank you. I also want to ask, um, what terminology do you prefer? Victim, survivor? How do you describe yourself? Both. Okay. Yeah. Victim and survivor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm not sensitive to either one. Either one. Okay. So um, you, where was your mission call for? Columbia. Kali. Okay. okay. Were you excited to go there? I was thrilled. <laughs> I couldn't wait to learn Spanish. Yeah. I didn't think I was smart enough to learn Spanish, but I thought, oh, this will be great. <laughs> Did you know any Spanish when you arrived at the MTC? Taco. <laughs> <laughs> I knew taco. <laughs> okay. We talked about her mission experience and how being abused at the MTC impacted her faith, a topic we'll explore in more depth in the next episode. And she told me about her experiences after her mission disclosing the abuse she had survived. She told her ex-husband when they were engaged. Um, He told me to let it go, that it was over and done. Um, And I didn't think that was the right thing to do. So She told her bishop at the time. Ron Levitt, who I'm sure you've seen on television. So you recall uh, this young lady coming to you? Oh, I haven't asked. Ron Levitt told us last night that a woman came to him in the mid-80s. Who she says then connected her with Elder Carlos E. Acey, a general authority of the church. Okay, so then that meeting with Elder Acey, what came of that? What came of that was Elder Acey um, took the information 
and said he would get back to me and let me know. Mm-hmm. You described the incident with with Joseph Bishop to Elder AC. Yes, but I've never referred to it as rape. Yeah. Until the BYU police told me it was rape. Right. Right. Okay. Um, and then, so then, who else did you talk to? I mean, did you at a certain point did you like you didn't hear back? I guess. No, I didn't. Well, no, I didn't hear back, Derek. But my life moved on. Uh huh. I got married. I moved my husband and some of our friends to Taiwan, opened a company there. Um, we were, you know, we were there for our marriage. Yeah. And then we returned to Texas, to Tyler, Texas, okay. and um, got divorced. So it was down the road mm-hmm. um, that I started asking questions and asking for answers, and no one could give it to me. Huh. For who, of who, whom did you go to to ask these bishops questions. and stake presidents over the years. Okay. Yeah. And what was, what were you trying to find out? What would, what, what did you, what did you hope from that you could learn from your bishops and stake presidents? Well, I wanted to know if the church had held a council, if, if they spoke to Joseph Bishop, if, if he admitted it, did he deny it? Did he call me a liar? Yeah. You know, I wanted to know what happened. Yeah. What was the follow up? Yeah. Was Joseph Bishop present in your mind over those years? Did he ever come into your mind? On and off. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so how like what else did you do to try to figure this out? Did you ever talk to anybody higher than a stake president or directly um, connected to the LDS church itself? No one would talk to me. Okay. Um, but in 2010, I called Salt Lake myself. Really? Yes. Well, I mean, just like you looked up a number for the headquarters? What did you yes. Know? Yes, and I I was transferred several times, uh-huh. um, but yeah, it was it was in 2010, and I said, look, his name is Joseph Bishop. He was MTC president. Um, he sexually assaulted me. I have a gun. I will kill that bastard myself. And it was just after that, knock 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 on my door. The police in Pleasant Grove came and wanted to know what the threat was. Uh huh. Why did you make that threat on Joseph Bishop's life? Because I'm, I was tired at that time of being invalidated. Mm-hmm. Of, of I was told at that time, you're not entitled to know. Uh-huh. So whoever was on the phone with me, he said to me, you're not entitled to know. I said, well, was there a council held? You're not entitled to know. What do you mean I'm not entitled? I'm the victim. Hmm. You're not entitled to know. Yeah. It's like, oh, really? McKenna said she continued to tell her story to different church leaders for years. Nothing ever happened. And then in November 2017, she decided to appeal to a different kind of authority, and she filed a police report. I got on the phone and I called Provo PD, and I said, I need to report something that happened a long time ago at the MTC. And they said, oh, sorry, we don't have jurisdiction. I thought, oh, man. So they said, we're going to send you over to the MTC, to the MTC BYU police. Okay. And I thought, oh, nice freaking try. Yeah, like that's going to go anywhere. Huh. It's interesting because the MTC is in Provo, but Provo police doesn't have jurisdiction over what happens in the MTC. Is that what they said to you? That's correct. Because the MTC is owned by the church. Okay. BYU police are owned by the church. Right. Interesting. So it stays in the church. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, so you felt like, oh, this isn't going to go anywhere. It's the, yes. Yeah. I totally thought it was not going to go anywhere, but a detective called me back His name was Bob Nelson, Sergeant Nelson, and he worked sex crimes. Uh And so he listened to me, and then he asked some questions. 
and then he hung up and then he called me back after verifying some of the things that I said mm-hmm. um, and we spoke I think three times that day on the phone and then the last time he called me back he said would you be available December 4th for my partner and I to come and interview you and I said you're gonna fly out to Colorado and he's like well we're gonna drive and then after we interview you we're gonna go meet with Joseph Bishop I said wow yeah I'd love that thank you the first time I felt validated and they I have to say um, those detectives were amazing amazing they were um, professional and, and careful and sensitive so the timeline is you you talked to the BYU police on the phone. Yes. Schedule, they scheduled to come visit you. Yes. And in the meantime, you went and met with Joseph Bishop. Right. And okay. I didn't tell anyone. Okay. Well, I didn't tell them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would have said, no, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But when I hung up, I made some calls, found out, well, I called Salt Lake and found out where Joseph Bishop was living. I told this young man on the phone that I was looking for my former mission president and I, he, who had served in Argentina. I didn't say anything about the MTC. And so he gave me his address in Chandler, really? Arizona. Who was this person on the phone? Just like a His name employee? was, I don't know who he is. Okay. I don't know who he is, but I have his, I have all that information. Yeah. Um, so I looked on the Mormon website to find the location of his home address and through that, I found his stake president, his bishop, and the missionaries. Huh. So I called the missionaries and a new missionary that I spoke to. Um, I, I told him the same thing. I'm looking for, I don't know if this man is in your ward, but I'm looking for Joseph Bishop. He had served as mission president in Argentina. And he said, I don't know, let me ask my companion. So his companion said, yeah, he's in our ward. He's like, yeah, Joe Bishop, he's in our ward, Brother Bishop. Do you want his phone number? I said, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. So he gave me a cell number. So I hung up and I went, hmm. Okay, I'm on my way. So I called the airline, booked a hotel, a car. And then I went, oh, crikey, I haven't even called him to see if he's in town. What if he's not in town? So I called him and I told him, you know, I I told him I was doing a story on high-ranking LDS people in the church, priesthood holders, temple presidents, mission presidents, that stake presidents are dime a dozen. But I wanted to interview some temple presidents and, and mission presidents. I heard that he had served two missions and he said, no, I've served five. And he went on this rant about how grateful he was that I would bring so much joy to the lives of other people by writing about him. This was on the phone. This is on the phone, yeah, uh-huh. right? So I thought, oh, a narcissist who knew (laughs) so anyway to prepare for her interview with bishop mckenna spoke with her friend who was married to a covert narcissist and she also has a degree in counseling i spoke with this friend after talking to mckenna and she said she didn't want her name to be used in the story but she verified that the two of them did talk beforehand about how mckenna could approach her meeting with bishop she actually helped me plan um, the best way to approach him. Uh-huh. So when you deal with a narcissist, you have to play on their narcissistic mentality. And part of that had to do with elevating him and making him believe that you think he's this amazing person, that he's way up there. And so that wasn't a difficult thing for me. 
I just kind of went back to where I was before I went on my mission. Um, but she was on the phone with me for an hour before I met with him. And she was on the phone with me as I walked into the lobby and there he was. So she heard his voice. Oh. So that was kind of interesting too, but no, she helped me prepare. And having worked in substance abuse in court uh-huh. for, for a number of years, I understood addiction mm-hmm. enough to know that if I gave him that out to let him use his addiction as an excuse, he may be more willing to talk. Let's talk about it. Okay. But when I got to the hotel, I had my recorder and he was there. He was 10 minutes early. I wasn't ready. So I panicked a little bit and I took him into the room and the conference room. Yeah. And um, then I went out to the front desk to buy water and I asked for duct tape. Do you, do you have any duct tape? Because I had this recorder. I, I wasn't, I was going to sit it there. It was a secret recording. So they didn't have any, but they did have the clear packing tape. Uh-huh. I didn't know if that was going to work. But when I got into the room, I gave him his water and I dropped mine. So I reached down to pick it up and I taped the recorder underneath the table. I didn't even know if I had it on, Derek. I didn't even know if it was on. I thought it was, but I wasn't sure. I was so unprepared. Anyway. That's that's amazing. I know. I know. As an audio professional, oh. <laughs> I'm, cur- I'm curious yeah. what that moment was like of checking, you know, checking your recorder after the conversation. It was, I, it was such a relief. I was like, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> so how did you decide to go and record a conversation, to go and confront Joseph Bishop in person and record? Like, how did you, how did you find the strength to do that? I don't think it took strength for me. For me, I was pissed. I I knew the cops were coming. And I knew that they were going to interview him. And I was pretty sure he was going to lie. So part of me knew that this was my only chance. Mm. And part of me was angry. I was really angry. Um, Here he's living on a golf course, living his life, um, happy, as far as I could tell, just from that brief conversation on the phone with yeah. him. And I was struggling. And he's, he, he told me on the phone that he was second president, no, second counselor, excuse me, in the yeah. Sunday school presidency in his ward. Okay. And I thought, oh my gosh, really? So I was angry and I wanted, I wanted, I knew that I wanted to confront him. Yeah. Um, and that was my only chance. And I was mad that he was still a happy, active, card-holding yeah. member. Yeah. yeah. So did he know that the cops were going to come at this, at this point? Do you think they had already contacted him and made arrangements? Oh, no. No, okay. he had, even when they showed up, he had no idea they oh, were really? coming. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so you felt, did you feel like whatever you might be re- recording might be helpful in the legal process? I didn't know if he would even confess. Yeah. I had no idea what I was going to get. Yeah. But if I was going to get any information or any apology from him, it, I would have to maneuver around his narcissistic tendencies. Yeah. So it was like walking a fine line. Yeah. Did you have a suspicion before you went in that you weren't the only survivor for, or victim of Joseph Bishop? I did, mostly because of the sister missionary um, that was groomed with me. Mm-hmm. 
And the idea of the other two sisters from that first meeting, so there were four of us in that first meeting, and the other two I never saw again. And so as I thought about it, um, I thought that either they went on their missions, Mm. like I said, or they were just too smart for them and never came back. Mm. But because there were four of us in the first meeting, there had to be other women. And then he was so brazen with his taking me down through the basement and locking the doors um, for that to have been his first time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and once he got me down there, um, it seemed like he had already done that. He already mm. knew what to do. Mm. So yeah, I, I was pretty sure, but I had no idea when he, when he was trying to figure out who I was and he was naming off sisters, he thought I could have been, um, the girl with biker friends. Who is that, Derek? Because that's not me. Mm. Who is the woman that wanted her picture taken at the temple with whoever? That wasn't me. And who was the girl that had the breast implants that he says he asked to expose her breast? That wasn't me. So those are three victims right there. Who are they? Because he thought one of those was me. They weren't. Yeah. And and none of those three were the other sister missionary that he took to his home yeah. and assaulted. And it seems to me like if you if your intention with him was just to get him to confess something, maybe you would have just gone along with any of those stories and been like, yeah, that's me. But I have to say your, what you have said from the beginning and on that tape is consistent. And um, the experience of the experience that you had, you weren't just looking for him to confess about anything. You, you, when he started offering these things on the tape of, are you this person, this person, you didn't just say, yeah, that was me. You said, no, that wasn't me. You told him, you told him that. So I have to, I just have to point that out that your story has been consistent and, um, is believable. Thank you. Um, I, I, I have to, yeah. So there's this moment in the, in the tape, he doesn't really, he doesn't really skip a beat in a way. It's, it's a fascinating moment in the, in the tape when it goes from, I'm a reporter doing this story about um, leaders to at a, at a certain point, about 40 minutes in, you say, okay, this is why I'm here essentially. Yeah. And um, I think the way it happens, and this is, this is how I heard it. Um, you say, I'm not angry. And then he immediately, it sounds like he says, well, you ought to be. That's exactly what he said. So, Nothing had been said at that point exactly, like why you would be angry. But it's so he, he, he I don't know. Is, is there anything you would say about that point in the conversation where it shifted? What was the, what was that experience like when forty minutes in, when suddenly the, the it was getting real? Now what you were talking about? When I said I'm not angry, and he said, "Well, you ought to be." Um, I knew that he knew exactly what I was talking about. Whether or not he was going to say it out loud was not necessarily important at that point. To me, he knew who I was. I was interested in this in this part of the tape, too, where he says he kind of some of his apologies, some of his statements of apology were also couched with this. But of like he kind of says, what what else can be done? Like, what is there to do now? What is that? Right. Mm -hmm. A a number of times. Um, What do you what do you make of that? That he's he's saying, "I, I feel really bad but I don't know what there is to do. Well, he's never, you know, the process of repentance, I understand that he spoke to Elder Wells and I believe he spoke to Elder Acey and he may have spoken to others, but 
just confessing isn't the whole process of repentance. You have to really go to your victims and you have to be accountable for what you did. And that's all of them, including Elder Wells, Elder Acey, whoever he spoke to, they are all complicit in, in this cover-up and in his sexual predation. So for him to say, what else can I do? Well, you can actually confess. You can actually stand up and you can, you have to make restitution. How do you do that? I don't know, but you start by talking to the victim. And that never happened. No. Yeah. No. Um, one part of the t- of the tape that I found a really interesting um, kind of recurring theme was it, it, a lot of it was coming from him, but you also kind of agreed to it on the tape as well of like this confusion of how somebody could do things that would be wrong mm-hmm. and yet still have positive experiences or like still be do good things in a, in in some ways do do you yeah do you have any thoughts about that that aspect of the conversation I do um I, I think that we you know I'm not a perfect person um but I can do good things my ex-husband um even though he was having sex with women he was baptizing he gave amazing amazing Sunday school lessons and people felt the spirit and it, he's an unworthy vessel, but because he's an unworthy vessel doesn't mean that the truth isn't touched by the people um, who are receiving the message. Hmm. So in that respect, yeah, I can see that. Hmm. It's just very, it's just very confusing. I have to say. It is confusing because when we see someone doing something good, we assume that person is good, but it's only that particular act that is good. Um, although there are a lot of good people doing good things, the ones that are not good, but are still doing good things. Yeah. It makes everything kind of convoluted. Mm. Makes you wonder, okay, so what do I trust? I heard in Joseph Bishop's confession, I heard in his words, um, I got the sense that he felt like he had repented or that there was like, that it was resolved. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's another moment in the conversation where he says something to the effect of like, but now I'm not so this now I'm not so sure that, um, but I, I, I think it's interesting that there is kind of these two realms of, of accountability. There's the spiritual realm of accountability. Joseph Bishop talked a lot on the tape about meeting God at the judgment bar. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't seem very interested in any kind of earthly accountability. Or legal accountability. Oh, no. Or civil accountability. Of course not. No. And then we have to ask the question, so what does repentance look like to Joseph Bishop versus everybody else in the church? Did you ever tell him he was being recorded? The next day. Yeah. How did he take Not that? the next day, excuse uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. Um... He, he called me right after the BYU police had been to his home. Okay. Um, and he said, the police have just left my house. And I said, those are not police. Those are senior sex crimes detectives from BYU. He said, well, I'm sorry you felt the need to do that. And I said, well, I did. So what'd you tell him? He said, oh, I told him everything. And I said, well, you must feel really, really relieved. He said, oh, yes, I do. And, you know, we really could have been friends. We really could have had a tight connection. I was like, really? I don't think so. So then how did the recording get to Mormon Leaks? Do you know or do you have comment on that? I Well, 
I can tell you this, I gave that recording to a lot of people okay. and um, news sources as well, mm -hmm. uh, one in particular. Um, it was leaked without my consent. Mm -hmm. I'm happy it was leaked. Um, I understand the conflict that Mormon leaks had in deciding to release it. But um, I think after their contemplation, the amount of hours they, they, they had deciding what was the best thing to do, they were worried about the victims that would be silenced if I took a, if I send a non-disclosure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But having it released without, without your consent um, is another, another case of somebody else deciding what to do with your story. I guess so, but you know, it, it, it was difficult for about six hours. Yeah. Um, and then I was completely okay with it. And my attorney said, you know what, McKenna, don't worry about it. It's, mm. it's out there now. We don't have to worry about it being exposed. Yeah. Now it's there. Let's deal with it as it is. And I thought, oh, thank you for that, Craig Vernon. Do you think that, that it's just an impossible thing to imagine for, for some members of the church that this story could be true in a way, like it's just too difficult to even go there? Well, I think ha allowing yourself to believe that this could possibly happen creates a, a, a flight or fight, hmm. not even a, a what if for members of the church who are really strong believing members, good people. Yeah. But it, it brings into question... Um, sending your kids on missions. Are my kids safe at the MTC? I mean, really? I don't want to believe they aren't. I don't want to know that I sent my children through the MTC and there was a rape room down in the basement set aside specifically for that. Um, I think also it makes people stand in a very uncomfortable place when they have to look at their church leaders and wonder what did they know and what else do they know and why would they cover that up? So, yeah, I think it's really hard. And I, I feel for them because I myself, it happened to me and I didn't want to believe it. I did not want to believe it. I don't want to know it now. I don't want to know a lot of the things about the church that I know now. I would rather live in that little happy bubble and go about my life and thinking all is well in Zion. It's a, it's a tough place to be for people, and, and I, don't, I, don't, um, I don't look forward to that journey for them. Finally today, we're going to meet someone who was surprised to discover that she too was part of this story. My name is Jessica Lauder, and I'm from San Diego. Are, are you comfortable using your name in in the, for this piece? Or yeah, yeah okay. fine. Okay. I mean, the church put it out there, and I feel like I'm not going to hide. So. Yeah. Okay. Where Jessica comes into this story is with a nine-page dossier. The dossier. That had been compiled by a lawyer for the LDS church, David Jordan. The document includes potentially embarrassing personal details about McKenna, including a criminal history, details from her private church records, and information about her relationships. It also mentions the fact that when she was a teenager, she'd had a baby who was adopted. And even though the adoption, which had been done through LDS Family Services, was closed 
meaning details should have been kept confidential, the dossier names the baby, Jessica Lauder. Tell me when you first discovered that you were involved in this, that your name was on this dossier. I think I was at home and my sister told me that there's a dossier that was leaked to the media and that my name is on it. So she just wanted to give me a heads up. Mm. And I was like, what? Like, that did not sound real to me. I was like, why would the church put my name in anything? I mean, I'm irrelevant in this whole case. Like, what? what's the purpose? So at first I was like, no, that can't be true. And then, yes, it turned out it was true. <laughs> so huh. how, did you, just, how did you find out it was true? Did you? Um, through the reporters who I spoke to who had, had read it. Okay. And had a copy of it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So they reached out. Did, so reporters started reaching out to you? Um, yeah. Because your name was on this list? Like, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that must have been sort of strange. Yeah, really strange. We'll come back to Jessica and her story in a minute. Here's how McKenna first found out about the dossier and how she responded to it. Well, David Jordan, who represents the church, um, sent a copy of that dossier to my attorney. Um, and we already had another law firm in Salt Lake hired that nobody knew about at the time. Um, and it was CC'd to Greg Bishop. Mm. And so my attorney sent it to me with a message. We will discuss this tomorrow. I think he was pretty upset about it and needed some answers. Mm. So I thought, oh my gosh, my case is over. My lawyer's going to fire me. Um, but we did a conference call and I walked through it line by line. I said, I did this. I did this. I have no idea what they're talking about here. This didn't happen that way. Let me explain. Um, and once they heard that, they're like, okay, we're good. Let's go. Yeah. So the, the dossier had information on you that what might discredit you? Is that Was that the intent of it? Well, I, I think there was a multiple purpose in that dossier. One was, yes, to discredit me. Um, and the other was showing that I have a criminal history. And another... The part that was really disturbing um, was the ecclesiastical part where they talk about my daughter, Jessica Louder, and they name her by name. I think that in and of itself was meant to point out to me that they know everything mm. and they will stop at nothing to expose me so that this case goes away. I, I think it was meant to discredit me. I think they wanted my lawyers to pull back. Mm. Um, and, and they did for a couple of hours, but I think it was intended, uh, as a threat. Yeah. We know this much about your life and we are not going to hold back. We're going to let the whole world know what they didn't know though. Derek is I've already been through family court in family court. Anything you say or accusations you make against the other party, they have to prove that you're lying. The person making the accusations can just throw anything out there. Mm. They use some of those accusations in mm. that dossier. Yeah. Um, the fact that I'd already had my every skeleton in my closet already exposed, what was I? What was left for me to be afraid of? Mm. But here's one thing that, um, that they were also, in my opinion, trying to do, and that is to make damn sure that the members of the church knew if they came forward to help in this case, we will create a dossier on you as well. Eric Hawkins, a spokesperson for the LDS Church, explained the dossier in this statement to the media. Quote, Our work to address this matter has included the work of outside legal counsel to interview and investigate the facts and allegations. This requires access to membership information. 
During this process, it is customary and acceptable for outside counsel to correspond with the attorneys representing other parties, including sharing information that may support or refute their claims. Close quote. After Greg Bishop received the dossier, he distributed it, or information from it, to media outlets. And Fox 13 in Utah was the first to take the bait. On March 21st, they ran a piece that detailed some of the contents of the dossier. In my opinion, it was irresponsible of Fox 13 to run that piece. It appears to have used the dossier as its primary source of information, and in a three-minute news clip, without the whole context of this story, I think a quick rundown of some difficult parts of McKenna's life skews the truth of what happened and what is important about this story. So when you first heard the story breaking about uh, these allegations about Joseph Bishop and, and this and this tape, did you know that it was your birth mother? Oh, so, <laughs> that's funny. So I was I was on Facebook and my friend Marco, who's a really great friend for the last 10 years, he posted the story and I was just like, I just knew immediately who it was. Um, I, yeah, as soon as I saw 1984 and I was like, oh my God, that, that's my birth mom, you know? So that's how I found out originally. And then um, I, at first I was like, you know, cause I grew up in the church and I, even though I'm not active, I always thought that they were better than this. I always believed that, that they were different, that, that they're trustworthy and that they're trying to do good. So I thought that there's no way in hell that this could have happened. And then I listened to the tape and heard him apologizing and, um, and there's just so much compelling evidence. And I was like, wow, you know, this is real. So, I mean, even me kind of being involved in the, in the beginning and knowing that it happened to my birth mom, like it was still hard for me to accept that the church did this, you know, like yeah. this is just not what I ever expected. Did you hesitate at all before listening to the audio? Oh no, I okay. I listened to it, <laughs> and then I had to go to work. Oh man, yeah. Then I had to go to work, and it was killing me at work because I I couldn't listen to the rest of it, and I'm just kind of dying to know what what the rest of it contained. So, what yeah, were your takeaways was, from listening to that? Oh, it's just she is so strong and how courageous she was to to go in there and do that to face the person who assaulted her which is hard like i can't imagine sitting in a room with a person who assaulted me and so for her to go in there and do that and keep her composure and show signs uh, or show that she's forgiving him and um just trying to get justice you know like i think she did a really great job and he opened up like immediately you know he he admitted to all kinds of stuff and he even says you know like yes this sounds like something i would have done i should have never been in this in this position and it's just i was shocked how much he said during that that interview so i was just really proud of her and um i want i want everyone to listen to that because it's just amazing how she was able to um, confront him and be strong like that. They have a long conversation before she brings up kind of the true purpose. And oh yeah, I could never do that. It I would have sat down and be like, "Do you remember me?" <laughs> There's no way I could have gone 40 minutes, like you know, saying all these you know ridiculous questions, pretending to to care about him as a person. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Jessica and McKenna were not always close. 
In fact, because Jessica's adoption was closed, she grew up not knowing any information about her birth mother or even who she was. How old were you when you were adopted? I was a baby. So my parents got me on December 22nd, 1982. Okay. I was about two weeks. I was delivered in the uh, uh, Christmas stocking. So. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, how did that work? Did, what, what did that look like? What did that? Oh, it's just like my head and my arms popping out of the top of a Christmas stocking. So. <laughs> but they'd waited for so long to have a baby. And you know how in the church, everyone's popping up babies left and right. My mom, she was trying so hard to have a child. And so this was just such a great gift for them right yeah. before Christmas. So they wrapped me up. Did you always know that you were adopted? Yeah, I've always known. Okay. Always. Uh, my parents explained it to me when I was really young so that actually after all this happened, um, my mom's like, this is why all kids need to know they're adopted because it's going to come out somehow, right. you know, because can you imagine if I didn't know that I was adopted and then this is how I find out, you know, my name is in some dossier and like, you know, yeah. that was so shocking and horrible. So, yes. Oh, so gosh. they were very, yeah. <laughs> so they were very honest with me. Thank God. Okay. And um, I thought about my birth mom every day of my life. Really? Ever since I was little. Yeah, I tried to find her since I was like six years old. You know. Did what was your birth mom part of your life at all? No, because it was a closed adoption. So okay. we had no information. I didn't even have a picture of her. So really? it was just one of those things where I just imagine what she looked like and I really hoped she was Debbie Gibson because you know I was little and Debbie Gibson was so cool back then <laughs> you Did know you, you thought but she like, might be <laughs> well you know I, she was not in the right age but <laughs> but when you're little you know you just you just hope that it's this amazing person and you have all these dreams of who that could be so yeah. you know when you have no information you make it up in your head what I did <laughs> Well, and it's interesting that it sounds like from what you're describing, that does that longing that you felt to know who she was didn't take it all away from the closeness that you felt with your parents. Oh, not at all. And, you know, I'm really lucky because my parents were supportive of me finding her and looking for her and talking about her. They never felt like, like, well, we're your parents, so you don't need to look somewhere else. They yeah. were they understood that, you know, wanting that biological connection, which was really important to me. When did that start? When did you start to really in, investigate in earnest who she might be? Um, well, I had no information at all until I was 16, maybe 17. And here's where today's theme of obedience, or disobedience in this case, turned out to be Jessica's secret key for ultimately finding McKenna. Because I was a little rebellious, my parents shipped me off to an all-girls boarding school in Arizona. Uh-huh. And... Um, so my parents went to family services and they were like, hey, is there anything in her background that we should know about? She's rebellious and we're not sure where this is coming from. And the agency said, well, we have this file on her birth mom and we're not supposed to give it to you. So don't tell anyone, but here it is. And it was 27 pages of confidential conversations between my birth mom and her bishop and the adoption counselor and it talks about her um, when she was analyzed by a psychologist what they found and um, just all this really really personal information so in that document they blacked out the cities the states and her first name 
but they forgot to black out her first name a couple times. So that's how I figured out what her name is. And then, so what I did is I went through and I counted how many letters the city was, how many letters the state was, and I made a list of all the possible cities and states. And then I knew she was going to a university. So out of those, I figured out which of those places had a university. And I figured out from there that she was likely going to University of Reno. So I called the institute and talked to someone who actually worked there in the 80s and remembered her. And that's how I found her. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) It took years. So Uh I would just dissect and read and try to find any clues. Like when she came forward and said, I'm here because I'm pregnant and I was raped. I just want want to get this over with. They said, well, if you're raped, you have to publish your name and the fact that you're pregnant in the paper and ask the the father to come forward. Really? And yes, yes. And I was like, what state would have that kind of a law? That's ridiculous. So, I mean, Nevada obviously (laughs) popped in my head. Wow. So, um, I mean, but there's all these little clues in it that just kind of, I had, yeah, for years, I just put little clues together. And um, I ended up finding her actually when I was 18. Okay. Through uh, kind of compiling all these. Wow. So were there other like clues that you that you found along the way? Um. Well, so originally when my parents got me at the adoption agency, the woman who worked there gave my adoptive mother paperwork. And on the top, it had a last name written in pencil. And my mom read it. She's like, oh, what's that? And the lady's like, oh, no. And then she erased it. So my mom always remembered that last name. She's like, this could be her birth mother's last name. So because we had that and because they forgot to black out her name in the documents that they gave me, then we had her full name right there. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So. Okay. So I just want to clarify. So when you were around 16, 17, your parents went back to LDS Family Services basically asking if they could provide any any insight as to why you were being rebellious is that right yeah why yeah. why i'm just i'm not i'm not really connecting why that would why they would have anything like that like you you were a well, baby thought maybe like in my medical record that my birth yeah. mom i don't know they they were just looking for anything to help me at that point cuz i was just i was a little more than normal rebellious I okay guess. i don't know so they so they provided some documents um that were in that were that confidential were confidential but they yeah. they thought they had blacked out the in the confidential information but they yes yeah but you know when you read the papers it is absolutely private mm. things that she shared with her bishop and her counselor which are horrible horrible to like share with anyone um the hardest part for me when i got it i mean i was excited because i i craved any information i could find about her but so I'm sitting in, in boarding school and I had been raped two days before I went to boarding school and I'm sitting there by myself and I get these papers and I read that I'm the product of a rape and it was so devastating. It just, it rips me apart because I didn't have my family there. I didn't have friends there. I just had these papers in my hand and I'm, I'm trying to process my own experience and 
just learning that piece of information was just horrific. I just remember sobbing on the ground and I felt just so disgusting because I had just gone through that and just knowing that's what I came out of, it just made me feel like less of a person in that moment. And it was just, it was devastating. And not having anyone around me who cared, it just, it made it so much harder, you know? So it was just, I should have never had those papers. So it was, yeah, I don't, I don't know who thought that was a good idea. Yeah, so the, uh, 27 pages, and it's the first time that you, it's really the first any real tangible thing that you had of your birth mother. Yeah. I knew her dad. Uh-huh. I dated her dad. I really liked her dad, but I was not ready for that kind of intimacy. Yeah. And so no, 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 no turned out to be, oh, yes. So it was a date rape situation, mm-hmm. um, very difficult to prosecute. He had been a police officer, and he was at the time working security. Um, it, it's a sensitive topic um, because no should always mean no, um, but I think for some people, some men and some women, no doesn't always, I don't know, you know, sometimes people say, oh, no, you know, and then there's, oh, hell no. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't brave enough to say, oh, hell no. I right. didn't know myself well enough right. or have enough self-confidence to say, oh, hell no. So yeah, what happened was, in my opinion, date rape. Yeah. As you have been um, in the public spotlight and just as you kind of fast forwarding a little bit, um, has your understanding of what rape is and um, what consent is changed at all through the experience of um, sort of rehashing all, all these experiences that you've had? Like in re- recently, have you come to some kind of new understanding about rape or about consent and the definition of those things that you didn't have before? Well, if we go back to Jessica's biological father, uh-huh. um, I honestly believe I gave mixed signals. Um, I didn't want sex. I I wasn't ready for that. And my entire entire time from being, or prior to baptism, to going on my mission, what I wanted was to go on a mission. Um, Even though we have those sex drives, even though we can be attracted to someone, and as a teenager, you make out with someone, sometimes heavy petting. It doesn't mean you want sex. So I did not give consent. However, I have to be a little gentle on that side with him because I look through looking back, I think I gave him mixed messages. So although I still think it was rape because it was non-consensual, I have to be a little softer on my judgment of him. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I, I am sorry that you experienced that. I just want to say that that I'm. I believe that that um, experience, whatever mixed signals, you know, whatever that means, um, that shouldn't have happened. I'm, I'm sorry. Thank that that you. Um, yeah, but yeah. I got Jessica out of it. <laughs> there you go. And she's a badass. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
Well, she's amazing. She's well, we'll come back to Jessica. Okay, okay. so So when did you first make contact? Have you ever made contact like with with your birth mother? Oh yeah, so I met her when I was 18. I okay. flew out to South Carolina where she was living at the time uh-huh. and met my little sisters from her and um yeah, it was it's something I'd been waiting for my whole life. Yeah, paint so, that picture. What what, what tell, me, <laughs> tell me about that moment. <laughs> I mean, it was unreal. Like <clears throat> I met her and she she was so young and beautiful and classy and articulate and I was just really excited to know her, you know, and all these questions I had my whole life. So we ended up staying in a really fancy hotel. And I remember just staying up all night talking to her about my life. And I brought pictures of since I was a baby till the current time. So she could just see everything that I had done. And um, I was just excited to share that with her and find out who she is. I wanted to look at her hands and see if they look like my hands. I wanted to just like have some kind of connection. And so it was really an exciting moment. Did you see yourself in her? Oh, yeah. What? A lot. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm nothing like my parents who raised me. Um, and then I met her and I'm like, oh, my God, like that's where I came from. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, if you put a picture of us next to each other from when we were in our early 20s, we look almost identical. Yeah. Wow. So that, she that. just had, yeah, just like big eyes, nice smile. And she just looked like full of life. That, that would be so, I just can't imagine what that would be like to, to meet somebody that is a stranger, but is so related. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. It was like, it was like a future me. It was really wow. weird. <laughs> wow. What was it like for you? What it was, was the same thing. <laughs> really? It was like a mini me. Yeah. Except her hair was a lot curlier than mine. Yeah. Yeah. No, we were um, personality wise, even some of our mannerisms. Um, yeah. We're identical. Okay. And so what is your relationship like with, with McKenna Denson? Like, is she, do you talk, do you call her on the phone, you know, every week or anything like that? Well, now we talk every day. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is really like kind of reconnected us. Really? Uh, Just, yeah, because I mean, nobody else understands what this feels like except for us, you know? Hmm. So it's really, yeah, brought us together. Well, now I talk to her almost every day. And other than not just speaking on the phone, but texting and making plans. Um, So it has fostered a relationship that I I feared was gone. Hmm. So this has been an amazing opportunity for that that one part of my family to reunite. Um, Yeah, that's been... She sent me a text on Mother's Day. She's never done that. She's 35 years old. She sent me a text on Mother's Day. And it was amazing. It was like, oh my God. It's like I waited for that moment my whole life. So Jessica, um, I want to ask about more about, so when you found out that your name was on this uh, dossier, um, why, like, you, you wrote on a Facebook post about that you felt objectified. Um, and that, did, that you were yeah. being used um, to discredit your birth mom. Can you tell me more about that? How, how did you respond to this? What did it feel? Yeah, I mean, I feel like they were like, what is an embarrassing thing in her past that we can pull out and she wouldn't want people to know about? And that was me. 
just using me in order to discredit her and taking my confidential birth records, which were sealed, were closed. Like if I went there and said, Hey, I want to know who my birth mom is. They would never give that to me because it's sealed. If my birth mom went there and said, Hey, I want to know who my daughter is. They would never give that because it's sealed. But here we are and they need some dirt on her. So they open it up and then they share that personal information and not just with one person with, you know, multiple people. And then it gets leaked to the media. So it's just like, it's disgusting, you know? And it's, that's, it's so, per- I mean, like I said, what if I didn't know I was adopted? What if I never received those documents in 99 and I wasn't able to put the pieces together and find her? This would be how I would find my birth mom. And I'd be drawn into it in the middle of all this. And all those feelings I had of finding out that I was a product of a rape back in the 90s, like that's what I would be going through right now. And it has brought back those feelings and it's been really traumatic and it's embarrassing for people to know. And it makes me feel, I mean, I, I've, I've been able to work through it throughout the year, so I don't feel as bad, but it still hurts. You know, that's, that's my life. That's me. And, and I'm just being thrown out there as, you know, a deterrent and like I said earlier in my in my post, like I feel like I am the skeleton in my mother's closet and and I'm not. I'm a person and I have feelings and I have a life and I have a son and I don't feel like that was appropriate for anyone to drag my name into. Let's talk about what you want to come of all this. What do you what do you hope what do you hope happens? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I want people to be aware because it's so hard, I think, for people to take a look, like an honest look at what's happening around them. So I want people to see what happened to my birth mother and understand that that's true. And I want people to see what happened to me and understand that that was a really dirty move that the church did. And that I just I would just want their eyes to be open to it. And it, me posting on Facebook, I had so many responses of so many amazing people who shared similar experiences. And I couldn't even believe how much of, how much of this goes on in the church. And if people don't speak up, then we'll never know. And if we do speak up, then the victims can understand that you know we're not alone. As we conclude today's episode, I want to go back to this idea of obedience. It may be the first law of heaven, but here on earth, the first law just might be that everything has a shadow, even trusted institutions and individuals. There are are still missionaries going to the MTC now um, and going on missions and maybe this is a question you'd prefer not to answer and that's that would be fine too but would you would you have any advice for a missionary that was going to go on a mission I mean that was going to enter the MTC would would you have anything to say to them yes I have a few things to say to them first um, not every mission president at the MTC is Joseph Bishop or is like Joseph Bishop or has any indications of having behavior like Joseph Bishop um so keep that in mind and, and don't be afraid 
Don't be afraid of your mission. Don't be afraid of your mission president, but take care of yourself. Don't have a one-on-one with any priesthood leader in the MTC or anywhere else. Don't go to the basement. (laughs) Just don't go to the basement. You know, let the Lord, let, let the Lord lead you to do what you think is right and what is best in, for you in your life and will give you what you're looking for. But don't be afraid. Never, ever be afraid. Just be smart. Be careful. It, it seems like the sort of implicit trust that members of the church have in their leaders, your story kind of brings that into question. That, that, they're, that just the implicit, you can trust this person because they're your priesthood leader. Well, that that is what we're taught. Yeah. Yeah, but that's false. Yeah. Always has been, always will be. Just because someone holds a calling in the church doesn't mean that they're trustworthy. As a Mormon, I have been inspired by listening to the leaders of my church. But simultaneously to that fact, there is no priesthood rank that removes a human being's capacity for evil. In 1943, the apostle Richard R. Lyman was excommunicated for adultery. In 1989, The church excommunicated the general authority George P. Lee, who later admitted to attempted child sex abuse. Shadow is present wherever there's light. The spirit is really strong, regardless of how worthy the vessel, the spirit is really, really strong in the MTC. As a former MTC teacher, the news of McKenna's story hit close to home. That place, to me, is sacred ground. And now I have to confront the fact that it could also be the site of life-altering trauma and abuse. I loved working with young Mormon missionaries as a teacher at the MTC. I taught hundreds of them, and I was constantly impressed by what I saw week after week. On the day they arrive at the MTC, they have sworn off every convenience and entertainment for 18 to 24 months, devoted entirely to the purpose of serving God and other people. They'll only call home twice a year, The raw potential energy for goodness that Mormon missionaries possess is one of the most impressive things I've ever witnessed. I was also impressed with the people I worked with at the MTC. My coworkers and I were doing our best to help the missionaries channel that raw desire to serve into something useful and productive. And I was encouraged by the direction I saw the training going while I was there. Church leaders and employees were developing new curricula that emphasized missionaries thinking for themselves, being spiritually in tune, not just memorizing other people's words and performing them. The missionaries were being systematically trained to really listen to the individuals that they would teach, searching for ways to bless their lives. But obedience is still a vital part of the Mormon missionary program, and deference to mission leaders is encouraged. Sometimes a direct line is drawn for missionaries between their obedience and their spiritual power, or even their physical safety. Understanding that culture of obedience is one of the keys to making sense of McKenna's story, a story of a system failing. As I listen back to the two and a half hour recording of a sister missionary confronting her MTC president over sexual assault and rape, I got the sense that the system, the church, had failed both people on that tape. A man who had been lulled into a false moral security and protected from true repentance and accountability by his own priesthood leaders, and a woman who had been sexually and spiritually abused by hers. And now, there they were, the two of them, left to pick up the pieces. 
that's kind of what this story does for us, too, as listeners, I think. We're now left to pick up the pieces after this story has broken something open in Mormon culture. And like everything else in the Me Too movement, this story has the potential to reshape the status quo of Mormon culture. The ramifications of McKenna's story are not at all simple and very important. And we'll get into some of those ramifications next week on Mosaic. Mosaic is created by me, Derek Clements, with production assistance today by Mosaic's advisor, Katie Kyle. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please help make this show possible by making a donation or by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers also get access to bonus content from the show. Mosaic is an expensive show to produce, not only in terms of my time, but also in terms of real dollars for things like travel and recording. This Mormon Me Too series has been particularly expensive, so if you get something out of it and want more episodes like this one, please contribute today at mosaicpodcast.com support. I'll be back next week with the next installment in the Mormon Me Too series. Thanks for listening. I'm Derek Clements. Thank you.